0: So this message series called uh, Talking About the Tough Stuff, it's about the kind of stuff before which we can be sometimes silent, silence in awe or in shame or just not quite sure how to start a conversation. Not so this morning. Many of us, judging from the conversations I've had with you individually over the last couple months, and going into this last month of the presidential election, most of you, most of us, don't have any problem at all talking about politics. (laughs) Not too much silence. Indeed, I think there are more words spent about politics right now in our world, or at least in our nation, than about any other thing that people are talking about. But within a spiritual community, within wellsprings, within a religious place, the challenge is always to talk about politics the right way. To talk about it with the right heart, so that we are not replicating some of the ways of talking about politics that we find in the wider world that perhaps are not so enlightened. So I have two quotes this morning that really ground what I'm going to say. You can find everything that I'm going to say right in these two quotes. The first is the summer of 1991, I took a class in Berkeley, California, at the University of California. Woo! Bears, right? Bears? All right. Awesome. Great. I took a class there. They have a winning football team, are they doing well? I I don't know, I don't know. Um, I took a class there, and I took a, a law class. I had never really taken one of those undergraduate, but I figured I wanted to take a law class, so I did that between my junior and senior year. And the class was taught by a great old sort of Yankee, Republican, civil libertarian, really cool kind of guy. And this is what he said his philosophy on politics was, and mind you, He had dedicated his entire life to the teaching of law and politics. He said this, that politics is a sixth-rate activity. And there are only six gradations he was talking about to begin with. Politics is a sixth-rate activity. But it is an activity, although sixth-rate, that if it is not done well, will absolutely screw up activities five through one that are of greater importance. The second quote was from Martin Luther King, Jr., He said, it may be true that a law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. A law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. So basically it comes down to this, so I'm going to say today, one, that politics are essential, but not ultimate. And two, if politics have become ultimate in our life collectively or in your life individually, I want to say something has gone really wrong. Essential, important, not ultimate. Now, I base this truth in one of, for me, the most important understandings of what it means to be human and to have legitimate deep core needs that need to be filled as we move through this life. Can you show the slide? Maslow's hierarchy, any of you remember this? Good stuff. Now we're stats out at the bottom of that pyramid at the base. It talks about basic physiological needs and above that security needs. But once we get up to that sort of core area in yellow and all the way up to the top in purple, I think there's some real important cutoff points between what our political lives, what our lives as citizens can provide us and the difference at the top, from the middle to the top, between what we are talking about when we are talking about ourselves as religious, as spiritual, people. This hierarchy of needs, I think, very much the base, the physiological, the security needs. These are the kinds of things that I think can be and should be answered in the way I see the world by our politics, by our system of governing ourselves as Americans. But once we move a little bit higher, higher on to, towards the top of the pyramid, towards the apex, towards what Maslow really identified as that absolute pinnacle of who we are, The need for self-actualization, for transcendence, for a depth of love and purpose in our lives. These things, I think, cannot really ever be addressed by our political life. They are the kinds of things that perhaps the most astute observer of American life that ever was and came a long time ago, for 200 years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who took a look and if you ever took this course, it comes in two volumes, it's about 1,200 pages, it's called simply Democracy in America... Now, some of it's really dry, but some of it's really beautiful. He said that the incomplete joys of this world can never fully satisfy the human heart. The incomplete joys of this world can never satisfy the human heart. And I think that's absolutely true of those things when we're talking about security and the physiological stuff. They are necessary for our development as human beings. But the problem is some of those deeper joys, the religious aspect of ourselves cannot really be addressed by our political life, I think regardless of our political persuasion. The problem comes in our politics when we want it to do the work of ourselves or our heart or our spirit. And we saw a very pointed example of this this past week. Perhaps some of you in reading the news, reading online, wherever you saw it, saw that there were a couple dozen pastors in a variety of churches... Sort of spurred on, egged on by a conservative legal foundation that very openly, very openly were standing where I'm standing and endorsing a political candidate for president according to their interpretation of their Christian faith. I'm not gonna do a liberal-religious version of that. I'm not gonna do it because one, I don't want to place in doubt or in jeopardy our tax-exempt status. amen right (laughs) but even even if that wasn't placed in jeopardy by me endorsing a particular candidate it's about much more that why I don't endorse from this pulpit it's because our votes may be different or we may be voting for different reasons and I do not want that to come between us That is not the most important thing about me. I can guarantee you who I am voting for, and I hope it is not the most important thing about you and what you care about. Our relationship means too much to me for that vote to come between us. But the biggest reason I don't endorse is this, and it is because of what we were talking about on this hierarchy. Government works necessarily from the outside in in trying to provide some of those baseline needs, Spirituality and religion, it works from the inside out. Spirituality calls us to love and to awakening and to compassion and to transcendence. Politics and government calls us to citizenship. Both require commitment, but they are commitment of a very different order. Now an example I want to give you this morning to talk about these two different ways of seeing this relationship with our politics is this a hypothetical next-door neighbor who I do not have, but imagine that I do, whose dog continues to, day after day, poop on my front step. Imagine that. Now, what I want, most profoundly, is for that dog to stop doing its business where I step my feet out of my house every single morning. I don't particularly care how that stops. If it takes the threat of fines or citations to keep my yard, my front step, free of your dog's poop, so be it. If it takes the law to do it, that's okay. But from a spiritual perspective, the person, the guy who lives next door to me, is not just the guy who lives next door to me. I would like to consider him my neighbor in the truest sense. My neighbor who I am called upon as someone who is committed to my own spiritual awakening to try and love, to try and talk to this person and see what the deal is. It could be that maybe this dog is absolutely beloved to him and this dog has gotten sick and the most this dog can do is take two steps out of their front yard right into mine and create a mess. It could be that maybe this man is incredibly stressed out, losing his job, Maybe losing a spouse. And maybe he's just lost a sense of mindful connection to the responsibility with what my yard is supposed to be like. When I treat the person who lives next door to me as my neighbor, I can start to learn these things. But you know what? Chances are, the person who lives next door to me is just a thoughtless jerk. (laughs) And no matter how many times I go over across him and treat him as my neighbor, there's nothing I can do about it. At that point, I am more than happy to tax the hell out of every time that dog does its business in my yard. I am more than happy that the government is there to place restrictions, place restrictions and even punish behavior that is not in keeping with an orderly society. See, when we talk about spirituality beyond our politics, we're talking about love that brings reward. Law sets limits. Now, I am not so naive to think that punishment is unnecessary Or restrictions on behavior are unnecessary in society. I'm not an anarchist. And I'm not so naive to think that every time I speak in love, love will win out. That is not always the way life is. But I am not so cynical to believe that just simply negative freedom, freedom from, freedom that stops another person's actions, is the best that we are destined for. I think there are limits to what a political system can truly accomplish in our lives. The challenge to progressives like me people who vote normally the way that I do vote. The temptation was said really beautifully by T.S. Eliot, who challenged almost every system of religion, of governance, of politics. He said we can want a system of order so perfect that we do not have to be good. We want a system of order so perfect that we do not have to be good. That kind of transformation that we are talking about when we talk about our religious lives. I don't want a government involved in my transformation. I will tell you that right now. Because governments that try to transform their citizens from the inside out, whether it's the left, the right, or the left, reverse it for you. What they do is they very quickly are involved in that sickening slope down towards being totalitarian. Defining what is the highest good for their citizens is always dangerous. And so I remember this as someone who is a religious liberal and recognizing that religious liberalism, this tradition of Unitarian Universalism out of which all of us come and in the name of which we are gathered today, is not necessarily, although they often overlap, I admit that, not necessarily political liberalism. What religious liberalism means, one of its core beliefs, one of its core beliefs amongst its many, is absolute respect for the right of conscience. Absolute respect for the right of conscience against all systems of thought and of governance that would deny our right to flourish and tell us how we must flourish. I try and keep this in mind because, well... If you talk to me outside of this pulpit in the last month or so, and I've talked to many of you, it's not real hard to discern who I'm voting for. (laughs) Not that much of a surprise. And actually, today, I don't think I see any religious buttons or slogans or t-shirts. And you know, this is a free speech zone. You can do what you want to here. But I'd encourage you over the next month as these passions keep getting going and we're in one of the swing states we know. If you come across someone here at Wellsprings and they are not, you find out, voting for the person you are voting for, take a moment to check yourself. Ask yourself why it is so important to you, if it really gets under your skin, that a person at Wellsprings should vote exactly as you do. Maybe it is for some very legitimate reasons, but take the time to recognize your own thought process. Take the time to recognize your own heart in your reactions politically. I am volunteering for one of the campaigns. I've given time. I've given money. I am really invested. But I never try to lose sight of what's ultimate. And what's ultimate is this, that there is no easy calculus that reduces our identity to a political affiliation here at Wellsprings. Wellsprings has no stand on the stance on capital gains taxes or the absolute one right way to reform our schools, I cannot assume that, that because you are here at Wellsprings, you believe as I do about these things. I remember when I had my first first sort of comeuppance about a decade ago when I was meeting with someone who I just assumed to be a religious progressive. He was my ex-wife's Buddhist meditation teacher. Now, up until, perhaps it's just the circles of Buddhists I run in, every single Buddhist I had met until my life was far to the left of me, and I say that as a progressive, but after a while, we started talking about just what was going on in life, and it became absolutely clear to me, and at one point he named it, he was a absolute libertarian conservative. He didn't want the government taking any of his money, he didn't want the government telling them to do, in whatever case. Now at first I reacted, but, but you're a Buddhist. <laughs> See, I made that assumption. I made that assumption that someone's religious faith is easily collapsible into a political party's platform. It was my mistake, not his. And through that, actually, we had an incredible conversation in which we really challenged each other. Our values and beliefs here at Wellsprings are not collapsible easily into a broad political platform. I think there are some issues that come out of our core convictions that we can speak about socially with some degree of real unanimity. When I hear the words from our core convictions that there are many paths paved with grace and wisdom upon which to grow and explore our faith, I hear a core conviction around the idea that everyone is called to grow in this life, that everyone in the spirit of being loving, everyone is called to grow and flourish. We recognize that there, as Unitarian Universalists, that there are a diversity of ways that people can do that. The goal is a common one, but the means are many. And so from my perspective, this universalism calls me to great disappointment with both of our political candidates. Both of our candidates for president, because of their insistence, their insistence that they do not stand, for full marriage equality for all loving couples. All loving couples who are adult. My universalism draws me in that way. But ultimately, I don't think that is a partisan issue. You may disagree with me, and that's all right. When we talk about politics, we are going to disagree. (laughs) There is no absolute line that connects our beliefs and our values, our DNA here as a spiritual community, to a set of policies. If we try to, we are going to find ourselves getting tripped up real, real quick in ourselves and in each other. Listen to Lincoln, perhaps our greatest president. Lincoln, who said in his second inaugural address, as the Civil War was raging all around him, look what he had the wisdom to recognize. It is the best articulation of an American public theology by a public servant that has ever been. He said, both sides of the Civil War, they read the same Bible and they pray to the same God. And each invokes God's aid against the other. Fundamentally for me, and I think what Lincoln was saying, a God who is a Democrat or a Republican is simply a God that is fashioned into too small of a human category. A partisan divinity that is a higher power that, frankly, is not ever high enough. A partisan deity, an ultimate concern that will fail us ultimately because we have put it in a box. So I guess from my perspective, God must always and forever be an independent, (laughs) not affiliated with any platform. In our spiritual identity here at Wellsprings, it is more grounded than any partisanship. Now, when the passions from this election die down, there is still so much work for us to do as citizens and as members of this community. The passions of this election run deep and sometimes pretty brutal, and they're only going to get worse, folks, in this next month. I mean, listen to what the New York Post, listen to what the New York Post had to say about one of the candidates. A vote for him is a vote against God. If he is elected president, the people of this nation will receive the just vengeance of an insulted heaven, will witness our dwellings in flames. Female chastity will be violated, and children will writhe upon the pike. Now, maybe that last bit gave it away, you know, writhing on the pike. That sounds a little old school, because it is. It wasn't written about McCain or Obama by the New York Post. The year was 1800, and the politician they were writing about was none other than Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> who all political parties as invoke, invoke all the time as one of the great stewards of our democracy. See, he was locked in a politically polarizing, awful, personally antagonistic race against John Adams. I want you to hear this and I hope you know it. Negative campaigning has always been with us. <laughs> always and will forever be. Sometimes in some seasons it doesn't work, and sometimes it does. The world always seems to be ending to every generation that walks upon the earth. And the stakes, I tell you, of course, have never been greater. And we believe that four years ago, and we believe that four years ago, and we believe that four years ago, and we'll believe it four years from now, and four years after that, and four years after that. I do believe there are important things, very critically important things, that are in our midst, that are at stake. But do not buy the lie that our age this time is unlike any other that has ever been, and this is the absolute crucible. Every age wants to believe that, and it is, is a lie. See, because when we can recognize this lie, what we also see is we are returned to the everydayness importance of what matters to us most, the everydayness of service and compassion and justice and love, not waiting for some big hoo-ha of a quadrennial election every four years. We can put our wait to put our best selves on display. In one of the many, many morals and meanings that still spins out of the day of September 11th, 2001, you know, perhaps you did it. You went and gave blood afterward. You know the most important donations that were given on September 11th? Or after September 11th? You know when they were given? September 10th. Because in the everydayness of people who chose to give their blood when nothing catastrophic was going on, that was the blood that was needed when we were attacked. That's the call to be involved and to be engaged. Not just as citizens, but also as people of faith. Because I've been talking, I know, this morning about the limitations of what I think government and politics can do. But I absolutely disagree with those people who say that people of faith, like us, of a certain kind of faith, have no role, ought not to be engaged in political life. There is no neutral ground here. Hostility to religion, and those people claim that hostility to religion makes you a better citizen than being a religious person, that's a lie. There is just as much perspective in being hostile to religion as in is in and being an inherent of religion. If we come to the public square, if we come to political policy issues with no part of our identity intact, we will have no way to make a judgment about what is right or what is wrong. The difference is this. And I think all of us try to do this. I know I do. The difference is this, and that in making arguments about what is in the public square and what is in the interest of the public good is that we try not to make those arguments solely on sectarian grounds. You know, the kind of politicians, the kind of religious leaders even more who said, you must vote this way because God commands it. You must vote this way because God commands it. That is entirely different from arguing as a grounded spiritual person, but recognizing that we do not absolutely all of us need in the society a common theology, even if our perspectives are informed by spirituality. The model for this that still is the most excellent in our history is the movement that Dr. King led. His community was a community of prophetic Christians rooted in the black church experience. But if you read Dr. King, and I encourage you to, If you read Dr. King, you see what he did all the time is he never appealed to the common good by way of his own sole sectarian faith. He spoke to that American creed, that belief in fairness and the belief that all of us are created equal. That goes beyond and transcends any particular denomination. And when it came to his movement, it was very much grounded and we cannot understand it without understanding that it was grounded in a particular particular Christian understanding of redemptive suffering, that violence and evil is to be resisted even if it brings us harm. That was his understanding, his incarnation of his Christianity. But it was also grounded, if you read Dr. King, in what Gandhi called satyagraha, soul force, the absolute capacity of our spirits to resist what is evil, to resist it absolutely, but to resist it non-violently but even more, why the civil rights movement was able to change, transform our society. It spoke that common language that knows no theology, and the people who led the civil rights movement were very aware of what they were putting themselves in harm's way of, and they were very aware that when people, decent people, who perhaps wanted to stay on the sidelines, saw the dogs and the hoses and the beatings and the killings, that is when a common morality for almost all of us clicked in that transformed us and our society and transcended any sectarian life. I think finally what a politics must do if we are people of faith involved is it must be grounded and it must be humble. We should be grounded in who we are and also humble about the fact that other people see things differently. At Wellsprings, politics do not come first. This is not our primary call, and it is certainly not my primary call. We are not the religious wing of anyone's party. Week after week, I always try to put the message of spiritual growth first. If you want primarily what I call op-ed preaching... And there are many great preachers out there who do that. There are plenty of churches where you will get that. I will not give you a lot of that here. And it's not because I can't. It's because I'm not called to do so. My call in being for you, before you week after week is to live inside of and lead outside from, inside from, excuse me, our beliefs and our values. As we continue to grow here at Wellsprings, and week after week we see it, the social implications of who we are and what we believe will become more important. Because as we grow, we will have the opportunity to do even more good in our world. We are called as religious people to interpret the sufferings and the struggles of our world in light of our spirituality and our religion. And I have to tell you, as we do more of this, it will become more challenging. It will become more challenging for us. And that is why we put spiritual growth first. I've been in religious communities that do justice work and work in the community wonderfully, and I've been in communities that do it really poorly. The difference is this, is that if we can hold our hearts in one accord and know that our call as a religious community is to be grounded in our spiritual growth, then how we articulate that beyond wellsprings, we will be able to handle the challenges there. But if our social or political life comes first, it will take us apart. Because we will not have anything else to fall back on. We will become a series of actions. We will become a series of proposals. Now at Wellsprings, we've started slowly but very meaningfully in our commitment beyond ourselves. The Gleanings Program, 100% of the offering, every week since we've started in January 2007, You heard about our Habitat for Humanity house that we're building, our connection with the CARES Food Network. Just this week, I got a letter from a neurological social worker at CHOP, at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, because we were able to... I know some of you were called upon to do this. If you had young kids, we reached out to you. We were able to give clothes to a young woman, a veteran of the Iraq War, who had to move from Florida to Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania has a better children's health care program because her child was sick, and they had no winter clothes. I got a letter acknowledging our gifts this past week of what we were able to do, of what we were able to do, and I believe we must do more of it. These are non-partisan issues, but they are moral issues with social and political implications. Rick Warren, whose theology I do not hold, but whose method of building congregations I really give a lot of respect to. He says that especially in a place like, you know, Chester County. I know not all of you are wealthy or rich, but this is one of the most affluent corners of our world. It is of the entire world. He says, and I'll quote him directly, that we have to be concentrated on being stewardships of our affluence and stewards of our influence. Good stewards of what we hold so that we do not live lives just unto ourselves. What I want to end with is this. It's what I actually hoped some of those pastors who would have been tempted to endorse a candidate this Sunday might have fallen back on, but didn't. It's a gospel story. And sometimes in the gospels, Jesus is asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to believe? And sometimes that answer is given as, well, you know, believe in me. Sort of a version of be on my team. And that's what some of the pastors are saying. Vote in the way I want you to vote and you will be a good Christian and you will be rewarded with heaven. But this story is not like that. See, the followers of Jesus come to him and they say, what do we need to do to be amongst the blessed? And here Jesus sounds very much like the universalist that I absolutely believe he was, the universalist that I believe he was at his core. He offers no test of party loyalty or creedal purity. What he offers is an example of loving practice. Jesus says that those who will be welcomed and recognized among the blessed, he put it this way. I was a prisoner and you visited me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. The people were following him say, I don't get it. When did we see you hungry or naked or in prison or sick? And I love Jesus' answer here. Truly, I tell you, that what you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. What you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. Now, the least of these are not least because they matter less. (laughs) The least of these are least because there is suffering in this world. And our call is to remember that all are worthy. And the measure of our truest strength as a people especially as a religious community, the truest measure of our strength is how all of us treat and are called to treat the least of these, the least of our brothers and sisters. And this work continues on well past election day. Amen. May you live in blessing.